So we will start by Jeff giving a, about 30 minute presentation and then uh, Hugo and I will uh, kick off the discussion with each of us maybe talking five to ten minutes and then we'll open up to the plenary and we have to vacate the room by three. David Roden, who can't be here today unfortunately, wanted to have a session that would be devoted to the issue where do we go from here in just war theory? That is, what, are, what direction should just war theorists be looking to go in uh, in the coming years? And I took this to mean both what are some of the theoretical problems that may be most interesting or most difficult or most important, and also in what ways might we make practical progress in influencing <coughs> both the military and international lawyers. So that was the, the brief. Um, the last email exchange we had, David seemed to want me to say quite a bit about what I thought some of the more important theoretical issues um, might be, uh, what, 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 what might be high on the research agenda. Some of these I have views about and others I don't have views about or haven't thought about very much. Let me mention a couple of the topics. I, I put them at the end because I have really almost nothing to say about them, but I think are going to be issues that people expect just war theorists to have something to say about. Uh, one of them is cyber war which uh, Just War Theorists really have not said very much about. This raises, I think, just familiar issues about side effect harms to civilians, but uh, harms of a, a different form from the kind that we've seen in the past. Cyber war threatens innocent bystanders with um, infrastructure failure loss of computer data, um, economic disruption, disruption of the stock markets, uh, that kind of thing, uh, might uh, pose some physical threats if water supplies or sewage treatment facilities uh, stop working as a result of interference with the computers that are involved in running those things. But um, it's, an, it's an unexplored area. Um, to the extent that the moral problem with cyber warfare is a problem of side effect harm to civilians, it resembles this problem that I call the problem of lesser aggression in military war rather than cyber war. Namely, the, the side effect harms of cyber warfare are likely to be lesser, more minor harms to individuals than you know, having a drum bomb dropped on them or something like that, but they're going to be very widespread. That is to say, the, the harms themselves may be comparatively small, but the number of victims may be very, very large. And that phenomenon raises a lot of interesting issues. I mean, that's, that's actually what I'll be talking about in my um, Aster lecture on Thursday night. I'm going to discuss this problem of lesser aggression, where you have military aggression that um, threatens certain lesser rights or lesser values. Another issue that I think we're going to be called upon to deal with that we haven't dealt with very well up till now is the use of robots and automated technologies in warfighting, where more of the decision-making, that, that's in quotation marks, will be done by machines rather than by persons. So this is going to raise a lot of questions about responsibility, liability, um, both in morality and in law. So when, the, when some robotic technology destroys some facility and lots of innocent people are killed, I don't know who's we're going to want to know who's responsible for that under law. What kind of constraints should be imposed on this technology? And, so on. 
But I actually have very little to say about these issues. I mention them because David said, this is, you know, what, what should we be <coughs> thinking about? Well, we're going to have to think about them because these are imperatives that the technology is going to be imposing on us as just war theorists. Stepping back a bit to some things that I've thought a bit more about, I think one of the more important issues is going to be how we think about these very theoretically very difficult issues of uh, proportionality and necessity, both ad bellum and in bellum. The reason that this is a problem is that according to the revisionist understanding of just war theory that I <coughs> tried to defend, unjust combatants, that is people who fight without a just cause, who are in the wrong in the war, can very seldom satisfy any of the in bellow constraints. That is, they're very seldom going to be able to satisfy requirement of discrimination properly understood, or by properly understood I mean that the requirement of discrimination holds that one must not intentionally attack people who are illegitimate targets and confine one's attacks only to people who are legitimate targets. And on the revisionist view, people who are fighting in a just war by permissible means aren't morally legitimate targets. Um, so it seems to me that at least one side in most wars is not going to be able to respect the requirement of discrimination, understood as the revisionist just war theory understands it. This is a huge problem for international law. We need to know, and just for practical concerns, we, we, we want to constrain people who are fighting in an unjust war, and we want to subject them to requirements of discrimination and proportionality. But <clears throat> If the revisionist approach to just war theory is right, they just are very, very seldom going to be able to satisfy the morally correct requirements of discrimination and proportionality. So the law has to be formulated in such a way as to try to constrain them with respect to legitimate targets and with respect to proportionality. But whatever the law comes up with there is very unlikely to coincide at all closely with uh, what morality requires. So there are general questions here, it seems to me. Um, can the in bellow legal rules be in any way asymmetrical between just and unjust combatants? Or do they have to remain neutral rules? Uh, that's an important question. With respect to the requirement of discrimination, we should ask whether the legal rules could ever permit unjust combatants to attack just combatants. It seems that they have to. At least it seems that they can't make um, mere participation in an unjust war criminal. That's a highly counterproductive uh, idea. So what are, what, are we, what should the law say about attacks by unjust combatants on just combatants? What should the law say about attacks by just combatants, insofar as they can ever be identified, on civilians in the country that's fighting unjustly who may actually be liable to some forms of harm as a result of their complicity in their country's action? Can the law ever take account of liability on the part of non-combatants in the country that is fighting unjustly. It does so to a slight extent I, already, I think, in that we acknowledge that um, civilians in a country that has fought a war unjustly may uh, be responsible for some share of the reparations that need to be paid to the country that has been wrongfully attacked, people wrongfully harmed. We accept that civilians in a society that has gone to war unjustly may be liable to accept some of the burdens of occupation or some of the burdens of economic sanctions, say, during the course of a war. So the idea of civilian liability to certain forms of sanction or harm isn't utterly alien. Uh, 
But there's a question about whether that can be extended to uh, mili uh, harm militarily imposed as well. One question that we might want to think about in this connection is whether anything might be gained by seeking to redefine the notion of a combatant. That's already a rather blurry notion at the edges, morally at, at any rate, uh, particularly in just war theory, where you find that uh, authors do say there are combatants and then there are non-combatants, and these are mutually exclusive categories and they're pretty well defined and so on and so forth. But then when you push on it a little bit and you, you ask just war theorists about um, munitions manufacturers, for example, they tend to say things that are rather strange. So they say things like this. Um, uh, munitions factory workers may be attacked while they're at work in the factory, but they're unlike combatants in that they may not be attacked when they're sleeping or when they're away from the factory. And I take it that what that means is that when they're working in the factory, they're not, they don't have the exact same moral status as other civilians or other non-combatants. It's not that the justification for killing munitions factory workers when they're in the process of making weapons is just that these are side effect harms to innocent bystanders. Rather, their status is not that of an innocent bystander when they're at work. But when they leave work and go home, they then have full civilian immunity. So it looks like what some just war theorists are saying is that there is a status that's actually intermediate between combatant and non-combatant, that munitions workers are, are neither one nor the other. They don't have the exact same status as either. And that raises the possibility that there may be gradations of status that could be distinguished both in morality and in law, particularly in law. So that we could, we, could, we could have a richer array of categories than just combatant, non-combatant. That's one possibility. Another problem that is both practical and theoretical is this. How should we formulate a plausible in bello proportionality requirement? Taking now proportionality in the conduct of war to be concerned solely with side effect harms to innocent bystanders. That's the way it's commonly understood. As I'll mention in, in a little while, I, I think another issue that we need to think about as just war theorists is um, the proportionality constraint on harms that may be done to enemy combatants, uh, an issue that is not recognized in just war theory or in international law. I think that's something that we need to take up as just war theorists. But for the moment, just think about proportionality in the conduct of war as concerned only with side effect harms to civilians. How can we formulate a proportionality rule for that purpose? The existing rule that you find in Protocol 1 of the 77 Geneva Protocols um, says that um, harm to civilians and damage to civilian objects should not be excessive in relation to the concrete military advantage expected from the attack. Um, I've argued in various places that uh, that rule is actually incoherent in its application to unjust combatants. Uh, it's incoherent because harms to innocent people really are bad things. They are, that's that's morally objectionable to harm innocent people. If that's going to be justified, it has to be weighed against something that has real value. Military advantage is not something that in and of itself has any value. Military advantage has value only in relation to the ends that it serves. So military, the value of military advantage is entirely instrumental. And if the goals that are being sought are wrongful goals then there's nothing good to be weighed against the harms that you're going to be causing to innocent people. So it seems to me that in its application to the action of people who are fighting in an unjust war, the, the, um, the proportionality rule that we find in the Geneva Conventions just makes no sense. But I can't think of anything plausible to replace it. Um, 
there are lots of possibilities here. I could run through them. Perhaps, how long have I been going? Ten minutes left. Oh, really? Oh, God. You don't have to. Okay. Um, well, so I won't run through what some of the options are um, and what the objections to them are. Perhaps you can just take my word for it. Um, uh, I've, got a, I've got a paper on war crimes that will be coming out at some point or other um, that, that discusses this problem of proportionality and how you can, how you can get a rule of proportionality that can actually be operationalized and followed by people on both sides that has any moral content at all. It's a very difficult problem. Um, related problem, I think, is how we should think about the notion of a war crime, both morally and legally. If the revisionist approach to just war is correct, and by that I mean a, 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 an approach to war that is asymmetrical between, morally asymmetrical between the people who are fighting justly and the people who are fighting unjustly, um, then, as I suggested earlier when I said that unjust combatants can scarcely ever respect a proper requirement of discrimination or a proper requirement of proportionality in the conduct of war, it follows from that that most acts of war by people who are fighting for an unjust cause, or at least in the absence of a just cause, are going to be morally impermissible. Given that that's the case, and given that it's implausible to say that everything that an unjust combatant does in war is a war crime, we're going to need to formulate a notion of a war crime that has some bite that's plausibly legally enforceable, it's not going to be unduly restrictive on unjust combatants, but isn't going to be unduly permissive with respect to, sorry, isn't going to be unduly restrictive with respect to just combatants, but isn't going to be excessively permissive with respect to unjust combatants. So this is really the, 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 the fundamental problem of criminalization of action in war in the light of moral, genuine moral criteria, genuine moral standards. We want acts that we criminalize and treat as punishable to be acts that really are morally wrong. We don't want to be punishing people for doing things that are permissible, but also we don't want the law, ideally we don't want to, the law to permit people to do things that are horribly immoral or impermissible. So we've got a problem with the notion of a war crime. Can it be revised in certain ways to bring it into closer conformity with our notion of what genuine wrongdoing in war is. One of the questions that some people ask is this. Um, is there really any difference morally between killing somebody who is fighting by permissible means in a just war and killing innocent civilians on that person's side? Um, Seth Lazar and a number of other people think that there is. There's just got to be. That's a datum. Um, but uh, that's not at all clear to me. So imagine, um, imagine that there's a man who's going to murder a child. And a good Samaritan shows up and is going to um, prevent the murderer from murdering the child, but may have to kill him or badly injure him or wound him or maim him or something in the process. And so what happens is the, the murderer, instead of murdering the child, he's only got one bullet. He shoots and kills the good Samaritan instead. Now, the Samaritan is the analog of the just combatant. Um, has the murderer actually done anything less seriously wrong by killing the man who came to stop him from killing the innocent <coughs> victim? In that case, it seems to me the answer is no. It's not in any way less seriously wrong to kill somebody who's doing something noble and good to try to protect the innocent. Same may be true of just combatants. Uh, so that's something to think about. Is there really any moral difference there? And what's the relevance of the answer to that question for law? I mentioned earlier that I think another uh, important theoretical issue, um, one that um, practical-minded people uh, aren't going to have any particular interest in, but uh, is clearly, I think, very clearly a problem of theory, and that is what are the proportionality constraints on the killing of combatants? Even, and perhaps most especially, on the killing of unjust combatants. There, there are bound to be limits to what it is permissible to do to people who are fighting in an unjust war. You can, you, can, you can 
Um, imagine a case, I'll, I'll, I'll actually be talking about this in my talk on Thursday night, so I'll anticipate a kind of hypothetical example I use there. Imagine a hypothetical version of the Falklands War, where Britain would have had to kill 100,000 Argentine combatants in order to preserve British sovereignty over the islands where there were 1,800 human inhabitants. That must have been disproportionate. I mean, as it was, they, they killed and wounded a number of Argentine combatants. Some people may think that was disproportionate, others may think it wasn't. But if they had had to kill 100,000 Argentine combatants to preserve sovereignty over those barren, desolate islands in the South Atlantic, would that really have been morally proportionate? I, to me, that's inconceivable. So there is an issue here. And I do claim that the Argentine combatants were unjust combatants. They were engaged in unjust aggression. But there's a limit to what you can do to people, even when they're engaged in unjust aggression. Of course, that's obvious in the case of individual self-defense. If I, if I can protect myself from being punched in the nose only by killing somebody, I just have to accept the punch in the nose. I can't kill even a malicious attacker uh, just to prevent myself from being punched in the nose, though some people may disagree. Um, two final issues, both rather large, uh, and I, I, I got till one thirty. Is that right? Yeah, little more. Okay. Two final issues that I think it, that, that we need to think more about. Um, one which I've discussed with uh, Cheney in the past, and that is conscientious objection. Uh, morally, what should the options for conscientious objection be? Legally, what should the options for conscientious objection be? How should we resolve the trade-offs between the moral and, I think, legal imperative to um, avoid inflicting terrible punishments on people who perhaps rightly protest that they are refusing to engage in activity that would be highly morally wrongful? Um, what kind of provisions can we make for them, and what are the trade-offs between what we can allow there and the maintenance of military efficiency and the preservation of national security? There is a worry that the more permissive the provisions for conscientious objection by active duty serving military personnel are, the weaker the chain of command is going to be and the, the, the less efficient the military forces are going to be. So I think that's a, that's a major problem. It looks to me as if the revisionist approach to just war theory, if it has any really significant practical tendency, that is, what good could ever come of the revisionist approach to just war theory, that good will be that soldiers who are being asked to fight in a war that is, in fact, an unjust war will be encouraged by the theory and its proponents and its effect on the culture to resist orders to fight in a war that is, in fact, unjust. That's the kind of practical moral payoff, as I see it, of the revisionist just war theory. I mean, theoretically, we want to get it right, but what of real moral significance can come from this? That's the main thing. So taking, taking the question about conscientious objection further and how it can actually be worked into policy and law is, I think, a really important part of fulfilling the agenda of the uh, revisionist project. Final thing that I think we want to think about is um, how to deal with terrorism and what the revisionist approach to just war theory might say about terrorism and anti-terrorist action. This is going to require us to think about um, what defensive legal paradigm terrorism and anti-terrorism fit into. Uh, the Bush administration very clearly wanted to say <coughs> anti-terrorist action is war. It's a war on terror. And it should be governed by the war convention or the, or the norms of war. More than that, of course, terrorists aren't really combatants. They're unlawful combatants, so they, they, they're neither criminals, and they don't, they, so they don't have the rights of criminals, nor are they really combatants, so they don't have the rights of combatants. How nice, they have no rights whatsoever. Um, we can do anything we want to to them, and to people we suspect of being terrorists as well. 
the Obama administration also often presents its arguments uh, within the war paradigm. It treats anti-terrorist action as uh, uh, wartime action. But then various representatives of the Obama administration say things that make it seem that some of their anti-terrorist action should be understood within the law enforcement paradigm, where anti-terrorist action is really police action. Remember what um, Obama said right after um, bin Laden was killed, justice has been done. That's what you say when criminals have been punished. Um, that's not what you say when you win a battle or something like that in, in, in a war. And there are many other occasions in which they have said things that make it seem as if they might be willing to conceptualize anti-terrorist action as police action, which is the way I instantly think it, it ought to be uh, understood. Um, I think there, there are, uh, there's a, even a, a perfectly plausible justification for some instances of uh, a targeted killing within the law enforcement uh, paradigm. Uh, so they could, they could do that. Um, another, th another position that people, myself included, have taken here is that in anti-terrorist action, both of the available frameworks, available normative frameworks, are, are inadequate. That anti-terrorist action is really neither war nor ordinary police work. And I, I think that's actually right. It's somewhere in between. And maybe we need entirely new legal norms for addressing the threat from... Uh, decentralized, dispersed, unrepresentative terrorist organizations. We need a new legal framework for thinking about that. But it's one of the tasks of just war theory to help think about the morality of that kind of action um, in order to help set the kind of moral limits on what the legal framework should look like. Okay, half an hour, I'm done. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Jeff, for this very rich account or um, broad research agenda, really. Um, it's a scattershot kind of... <laughs> so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what this might mean for the law, and Hugo is going to um, put it in context a little bit with his practical expertise on war. I felt to actually introduce us. Hugo Slim, of course, is the convener of the Oxford Humanitarian Group and the widely read expert on all kinds of issues arising in war. Um, but I'd be happy to go both head of the Department of Politics and I work on the laws of war. So um, I also got the memo by David that we should talk about where to go from here. And I'm going to look at the law, but also take up a couple of the tasks we specifically articulated for law and maybe sort of outline where I think it would be difficult or possible for the law to actually address them. If we start from the assumption that no social system ultimately um, will function or survive without a mechanism for the legitimate use of violence, we have a fundamental problem in the international system. Because in the domestic context, we of course rely on the monopoly of the use of force and it being expressed in some sort of police force. In the international system, the only legitimate mechanism for the use of force we currently have is war. And it is legitimate, or legally speaking legitimate, if it is backed by either a Security Council mandate or the right to self-defense. Now, war is about breaking things and killing people, and hardly anyone would contest the um, observation that we can't really wage war without infringing individuals' rights on a large scale. That di dilemma, that on the one hand we need war to uphold order, sometimes to render justice and preserve individual rights on the one hand, yet can never use that tool without actually infringing individual rights as well, um, we do rely on international humanitarian law to solve that dilemma, at least to a certain extent, to make that blunt tool of war acceptable in a very basic way. Now, I think, or maybe one of the sort of baselines for where we go from here is the acceptance that we are probably mistaken to do that to a large extent, to rely on law to solve our dilemma about war. Because international humanitarian law, or the laws of war, follow conventional just war theory, um, permitting the killing of combatants and the incidental harming of um, civilians, regardless of their status, regardless of their liability and actions. So basically, contrary to the revisionist account that um, Jeff purports, um, international humanitarian law does not safeguard individual rights in war. It regulates war not in light of preserving 
the individual and its status to which it is entitled, but basically just um, distinguishes or sorts individuals in one large groups, rendering every combatant, regardless of their individual moral status, liable to attack and thereby buying immunity, at least relative immunity, for the rest of society. I believe we have attempted and successfully showed that it is um, impossible to implement um, the revisionist count of just war theory. Just the practical and the epistemic obstacles to actually ensuring that harm done in war in any significant, meaningful way tracks individual liability. I think that literature is quite extensive. I'm not sure to what extent Jeff really agrees with me, but it really seems that we are at a theoretical impasse. Many conventional just war theorists will acknowledge that the idea that you can kill every combatant and as many as you want, regardless of what they have individually done or whether on which side they're fighting, is morally problematic. Yet at the same time, many revisionist um, just war theorists, including David Rowland, Cecil Trapman, to a certain extent Jeff, would say that there are serious, possibly um, unsurmountable obstacles to implementing the revisionist account. So what do we do with this um, impasse or dilemma? Well, what is less obvious and often overlooked is that IHL, that international humanitarian law, is actually in the same position, is in the same kind of impasse and practical dilemma. It has recently come under criticism for legitimizing violence. This is really formulated in the language of liability or individual rights. But what would have been unheard of even 10 years ago is now quite a common argument that um, lawyers say you can't fully trust international humanitarian law anymore. It is not fully up to scratch. And this is not merely a theoretical problem. It is a practical dilemma because international humanitarian law, of course, needs to be applicable. Right? And if we look at conflicts like in Afghanistan where public outrage was so significant in light of collateral damage that the rules of engagement were straightened and um, tightened ever more, up until the point where they were much stricter than international humanitarian law, yet they never succeeded in quelling this outrage about collateral damage, suggesting that the standard put forward by international humanitarian law doesn't satisfy our most basic normative expectations of what law ought to accomplish. Basically, highly legalized into um, conduct of hostilities, no longer meet with even our most basic approval. So what does that mean for international humanitarian law? I also mentioned, I already mentioned briefly that um, some, some scholars will say, well, that means we can't trust international humanitarian law anymore. Well, there are some tentative but a little more concrete attempts to actually change international humanitarian law, one being the idea that we should actually introduce a proportionality criterion when we talk about killing combatants. Or if not combatants, at least for killing civilians who directly participate in hostilities and who hence lost their <coughs> Basically, the idea that we challenge this fundamental long-standing assumptions about the laws of war, that killing as many people as possible is what you actually ultimately try to do in war. That even there we should, you know, at some point put in the brakes and say, maybe this is what Jeff said about the Falkland Wars, right? Maybe there's such a thing as an overall proportionality or a contextual proportionality. Now, all these um, tentative arguments, one of them having actually been put forward in the in ICRC's guideline on direct participation sort of under the purview of Niels Meltzer, they have all met with vociferous criticism by military practitioners basically saying that this is, makes war all but impossible. We have already witnessed this in Afghanistan with rules of engagement that were so strict that we put our own forces at risk, which also makes war politically infeasible. What you're asking here basically is trying to turn war into a peacetime activity in the world of Michael Walter. So this, it's quite interesting that this is very similar discourse than the one we have on the morality side, right? where the criticism of conventional just war theory, international humanitarian law, falls on exact, extremely fertile grounds because there is such widespread moral intuition that something's wrong in the state of Denmark. Yet there is, in both cases, this very clear criticism that what is being asked is completely infeasible. In the international humanitarian law side, of course, we have actually 
a change in how we evaluate or how we legally evaluate the conduct of hostilities. And that is the, um, affected by the encroachment of human rights law into the regulative purview of international humanitarian law. So while all efforts and attempts to make international humanitarian law more stringent are sort of failing, what is really happening is that we increasingly apply human rights law in our conflict. Specifically, human rights courts, like the European Court of Human Rights, take on the cases that are in the context of the conduct of hostilities and then apply human rights standards. So to a certain extent, we're seeing it is happening in the laws of war, but it is happening in quite a haphazard and sort of un unpredictable way. So if we basically accept just very fundamental premises, one, we accept that you can't wage war properly so-called without infringing individual rights, yet we accept that individual rights is a morally relevant standard in the international system, and therefore also the touchstone for successful international law. And we need a mechanism of legitimate violence in the international system, because every system ultimately needs it. Of course, there's the alternative of pacifism, but I shouldn't go into that. Then we need to think about quite radically alternatives to war. And that is really just sort of my point. I think we need to not attempt to change war or to sort of um, take a piecemeal approach and change individual crimes and individual um, areas of regulation. But I think we need to think quite radically about forcible alternatives to war, like law enforcement directly vis-a-vis -vis individual leaders, targeted humanitarian rescue missions, things like that. Because a couple of times, and this is going to be my last point, if law were actually to take up your challenges, for instance, by introducing gradations of culpability, by looking at, for instance, a munitions worker as sometimes liable to attack and sometimes not, that is extremely problematic. I mean, this is the idea of a quasi-combatant or any kind of third category is highly discredited in law, precisely because it has led to the erosion of any kind of protection in the Second World War. And that is very true um, in regarding other tasks you mentioned as well. For instance, the overall proportionality idea, or the idea that we should tie proportionality calculus not to military advantage, but to the overall goal of the war. As soon as we do that and we observe that, not so much tying it to a just cause, but tying it to a political goal, what we observe is that states think everything is proportionate because their goals are so important. Right? So sometimes, and that's my last point, it is... If we try to adjust law to being to approximate morality in a better way, it loses its ability to actually fulfill its constraining purpose. And I give over to Hugo. Janina, thank you. And um, it's a great place to talk after two really genuine and brilliant leading just war theorists. And I'm certainly not, I don't see myself as a just war theorist. So I'm not going to speak from the heart of this debate. I'm going to speak more from a community of practice, which is the humanitarian agency community, humanitarian studies, that tradition, much more. And in that respect, I, I, I should sort of say, I suppose, that from that tradition, when you pick up Jeff's book, when you pick up Killing in War and you read the first chapter, you sort of think, oh God, he shouldn't say that. He shouldn't be saying this stuff. This is a really slippery state. We've always worked hard not to say that. You know, that's because our community is actually about <coughs> restraining war as much as possible. So the idea of sort of cascading individual liability through military and civilian communities is what we've always tried to somehow avoid. So it's a very sort of scandalous thing to read at first glance. But then you think, <laughs> and maybe, yeah, but then you think, and maybe we were right not to go that way. And I think we probably still are, and that's where I'm going to come from. Um, I, on just on some of your general points, Jeff, I think. Yes, I agree with cyber war. That's an issue which theory must engage with much more and look at side effects. Um, the only thing I would say about I, I really disagree with your idea of you know, lesser but wider damage. If you look at the majority of wars throughout the world, people are killed from war, from the devastation of the structures that sustain them, like water, health, food, markets, not from being killed by bullets. Okay, so it's very exceptional. So the structural, what you call the lesser wider, are actually often the deeper harder. So I, I think the you know, empirical evidence is against you on that one. So I think that's why we need these things tested and explored much more. Um, on proportionality, I really you know, welcome you saying you want to think about what this means in practice, what revisionism means to reformulate laws to fit this. Um, to redefine the combatant, yeah, I think, you know, we've got to call your bluff on this, and you've got to try to do this for us in, in, 
And, you know, the revolving door civilian that you mentioned, the direct participation issues, this is an ancient issue, as you know, discussed in this city in the medieval times by Gentili and things. So, you know, we've all thought about this before, so how are you going to make those laws? How are you going to identify this array of categories? Because our instinct from our community is always to say, you'll never identify all the categories. And even if you identify them philosophically and legally, you won't get buy-in in such a nuanced way in the heat of war. So go for the big category. So I really welcome the, the fact that you want to try and make those categories and push them through into law and realism. And, you know, let's see if, if that works. Um, just on a, on a few things. What I want to try and do in this, talking from where I come from, um, I suppose, in the humanitarian practice field, I want to talk from... I mean, my concerns are with application, which, which yours are too, which is good. With application... <laughs> and therefore with the practical implications of revisionism. And I'm thinking about three things, really. Liability, legitimacy, and contextualizing. Um, because really, I don't think the revisionists have contextualized at all yet. And every time I hear your thought experiments, they are about, I walk into a room of guys about to kill a child, blah, blah, blah. Let's contextualize around real wars. Let's talk about CAR, DRC, Mali. Let's really talk about where wars are being fought, not nice thought experiments that help philosophers create categories and nuance. And so I would really embrace a research agenda that we could all put together or something that says, let's look at reality, not thought experiment. Um, so starting with that, today's real wars, you know, it would help me to really see how you can then pan out and come up with definitions of just and unjust wars. And let's start with our own wars at the moment, and let's make a distinction perhaps between existential and wars of choice. You know, what is a just war of choice? And, you know, when we go to Afghanistan, when we go to Mali now, when we are in Somalia as we are now, this is war as development. This is saying we are going to use war and violence through counterinsurgency as a means of developing democratic liberal societies as much as we can because we think that's right, because we think that's safer for us. Okay, is that a just war, to have a totally transformative agenda and to run a war for 20 years to pacify, stabilize, and liberalize a society, often without any notion of core consent and things, or how do you measure consent, how do you get? You know. So I need answers to those questions, you know, because I need to understand who are the just and unjust combatants in that situation. Um, because those actually seem more like imperialist wars to me. They might be liberationist wars, I don't know. Um, so that point about wars of choice and existential wars, are they, are they you know, somehow different and are there different kinds of justice involved? But then to move on to the civil wars of our time, and you know, thankfully, again, you know, civil wars are decreasing over the last 20 years, so violence in that form is lessening. But we still have Democratic Republic of Congo and CAR, where we have a lot of armed groups moving around. Now, I need to know, because you know, my community works with these people every day and, and, and that sort of thing, is the M23 a just or unjust force? And how is revisionism going to tell me that? Okay, so what criteria are you going to use? Where are you going to find it? What information empirically are you going to understand about the sociology and the political drivers of cause and notions of justice in the use of force in those civil wars by those armed groups? So, you know, I would really embrace a research agenda which sees revisionism saying, right, we're going to do a, a two-year study on CAR and DRC because that is a pattern of wars that's not going to go away and we need to understand criteria for justice and injustice, just and unjust competence in, that, in those contexts. Um, and then the second one, the next one, of course, which we have you know, at the moment in, in three strong state wars, I suppose. Well, you have a strong state civil war, so we're looking at Syria and we've the end of Sri Lanka and probably the, the custom of Pakistan counterinsurgency. You know, how are we going to calculate that? What advice are we going to hear? Um, we, you know, we need concrete examples. So I suppose I'm just asking the theorists, and you're yawning, um, to, 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 to come down to earth and join these us. Trifles. And, come, and join us about these things and say, well, you know, Syria is an unjust war because, 
or whatever, whatever. And the bombing of the Tamil civilian population is just or unjust. And let me need to understand that much more, because otherwise we hear you talking again in categories with abstract thought experiments. Um, and then there are the crime wars. So what do we do about Mexico? And what do we do about wars which are, you know, largely criminal in intent, but have mortality rates and structural disaster rates equivalent to um, an armed conflict or at least a civil war? And how do we understand unjust just competence in those situations, um, etc.? Um, the thing, of course, that really needs further research for you know, the humanitarian community is the question of civilian liability, which, of course, we've always understood. That's why, we, as we, you know, I said, we talk about direct participation. We understand the ambiguity of civilian identity. Um, you know, we're not going to pretend it doesn't exist. We're going to just come down always giving the benefit of the doubt and prioritizing a principle of restraint when violence is concerned. So your idea is that actually we should extend and, and really try and put into operation the notion of individual civilian liability. And what does that mean? And that's a really important research agenda in my view. Because if we are going to start talking very coherently now and even formulating wars about things called unjust civilians, then we really need to understand how you generate that category and how you can spot it and how you can always know enough to identify individual responsibility, because in many ways responsibility and culpability is your criteria of liability. So how can you ever know enough um, in a society where so often in these societies there is massive forms of oppression, constraint, where you know, your choices are so constricted that you may often do things that you don't want to do and you know are wrong, are you still coming? All these, all these difficult issues. So I would really welcome a research agenda that looks at um, civilian liability and, and um, pulls that out much more. And of course, the next step from that is humanitarian action, because one of the extraordinary features of the last 20 years has been the deep, you know, depends how you want to describe it, I would say, you know, positive involvement of humanitarian action, other than forward sort of subversive reactionary penetration of humanitarian agencies into, into wars. So that humanitarian action is usually everywhere, in any war. Now, if we have a notion of the unjust civilian, does that mean we have the notion of the unjust humanitarian aid worker, the unjust humanitarian action, which follows very quickly? And are we, therefore, looking at the liability of humanitarian workers? You know, not just as a breach of <coughs> Article 23 of the Fourth Geneva Convention that we're supplying effective material support, but that actually we are engaged in complicity with unjust competence and unjust civilians, in which case, are we unjust competence as well and liable to shooting or whatever, whatever. So there's a huge agenda there. If you're really going to get serious and, and come to the ground with this stuff, you've got to work out when you're going to kill a humanitarian worker and when you're not, just to be a little exaggerated about it. Um, and changing humanitarian law as well, I mean, you're both saying that that should happen. And I think I would really urge you to take that seriously as well, and therefore go and talk to humanitarian lawyers and have a conference about it. Go to Geneva, talk to the ICRC. So just to finish, my, my research recommendations would be all those, but to really deepen the engagement between revisionist practitioners, the revisionist theorists and orthodox practitioners. Because at the moment, I feel we talk past each other. Um, we hear these scary ideas that have a certain logic and a moral coherence to them. But something in our wisdom and, and deeper intuition says we've got to tread carefully there. And the only way to do this, I think, is by meeting much more clearly together and hammering out something. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to take a couple of minutes to respond? May I? Is that cool. okay? Um, <clears throat> I really had almost nothing to say in response to what you said. I tend to agree with most of what you said. Um, just with my philosopher's hat on, I'll say that um, philosophers draw a distinction between the violation of a right and the infringement of a right. Um, often, well, there are different ways of drawing the distinction, but basically, for our purposes, we can say infringements are actually justified, overridings of people's rights, and violations are wrongful by, uh, overridings or, or, or uh, contravening of, of people's rights. And, it's not clear to me that um, we can't realistically aspire to fight wars that, um, in which there are no violations of rights. 
wars uh, that, that so, so we're actually wrongfully violate uh, uh, um, um, infringing people's rights. That is, we attack only the people who are liable to be attacked. We're never going to be able to fight wars in which rights are not infringed. That is, where um, innocent bystanders get harmed and are, are harmed by us knowingly. But as long as we have a justification for that, well, it happens. It happens all the time in in in, in life. Um, we're infringing people's. I mean, I'm going to infringe some people's rights today. So are you. You know, it just goes like that. If I'm, um, you know, I make a promise and I have to. Um, if something more important comes up that I absolutely have to do, then I fail to keep my promise to you. I've infringed your right. You had a right to the performance of some act by me. Um, I couldn't do it. Uh, I infringed your right to, to the promise. I owe you some compensation, but it happens all the time. So, Just I mean, to clarify, I meant that you can't, un um, there's no way of not violating rights, unjustifiably infringing them. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, 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 would, I would dispute that. It seems to me that in you know, in smaller scale settings, um, it's possible to uh, intentionally attack only those people who are uh, harmful um, or in the wrong or whatever. But okay. Uh, the main thing I would say in response to what uh, Hugo said is um, give us time, we're working on it. <laughs> what I'm saying, yeah, we're taking a 10 year view. So, um, how long has revisionist just war theory been around and seriously been worked on by people? 15 years, maybe, something like that, at most. Uh, a huge amount of progress has been made, I think, over that period. But what, what, what revisionist just war theorists are doing is they're taking uh, this enormous tradition of thought and rethinking the whole thing. It's a Nietzschean reevaluation of values. It's starting from the ground up on, on, on um, starting with, with a notion of rights rather than with a notion of really kind of conventions in the service of minimizing harm. Uh, the difference between the framework that, that we have now is that it says let's try to constrain things in a way that's going to cause the least sort of destruction overall. Let's try to constrain everything. And the, just, the revisionist just war theorists are saying that the aim should be really to seek the <coughs> minimization of the violation of rights by uh, <coughs> war. And so we're having to rethink everything. All these issues are having to be rethought. And we're having to rethink the relation between morality and law and to what extent the conventional and legal rules can be modified in ways that bring them into closer convergence with morality without leading to disaster. And so we want to tread very carefully as well. Nobody's in the business of saying, all right, let's, let's um, make morality straight into law, come what may, yeah. even if the heavens may fall. Nobody's going to say that. Um, in, in my writing, I say repeatedly, it's probably best for the time being for the law to remain much as it is, that is, asymmetrical and neutral. I'm sorry, symmetrical and neutral between, between the parties. Um, I think probably the least good work has been done by just war theorists about ad bellum issues. That is, when is it permissible to go to war? Um, there's more work remains to be done about that, but work, there's so much work that needs to be done within, within the just war theory. We're just not in a position to start saying yet um, how we think the law should be reshaped, if at all. Um, that being said, so, so one thing I would say is the work of moral philosophy is trying to understand things at the level of principle. We're trying to understand things at a fairly high level of abstraction with respect to categories like rights and duties and immunities and privileges and permissions and that kind of thing. We want to get it, we've got to get, get the problems at the higher level worked out first, and we haven't done that yet. Um, so, for one thing, we can't stop working with the hypothetical examples yet. That, that's still the, the, where, where we are in our work. We're sorting out the principles and 
thinking about hypothetical examples is just an indispensable tool of moral philosophy. So it may seem frivolous outside of philosophy, but it's the way philosophy has always worked. And I can explain to you how it works if we had time. It work, I won't try to do it here. It, it, it works by trying to isolate different variables and assess them independently of other things that may be affecting our understanding of the situation. So you take real-life examples, they're too complicated. We can't tell what's influencing our intuitive reactions. We can't tell which the factors are that are really doing the moral work there. So we make up hypothetical examples that eliminate the clutter, that eliminate the noise, and allow us to focus on the factors that we want to test at the time. It's like a form of science. We, we're purifying our, our working materials here. We're getting rid of the impurities, and we're testing for this factor or that factor. We want to know, is it responsibility that's important here or culpability, you know, something like that. So we clear out all the other things that might distract us from focusing on the things that we need to focus on. That's why, in moral philosophy, hypothetical examples, thought experiments are really important. We're not in a position yet to deliver authoritative judgments about particular conflicts in all their messy and unruly particularity, partly because we don't have the principles right yet. We can say, we can say some things, and one of the things we can say is that often the use of force is to some, the, the morality of the use of force is to some considerable degree divorceable from the background rights and wrongs. Um, we can say things like this, that um, the Palestinians have many legitimate, serious grievances against the Israelis. On the other hand, if they start firing rockets into Israeli cities, Israel has uh, the permission to take certain forms of action to stop that from being done by, by, by force. Um, and the rights and wrongs of the use of force in that context may actually be to, to some considerable degree divorceable from the fact that the Palestinians have these grievances if they actually pursue the redress of grievances by wrongful means. And that may be true in a lot of other areas of the world as well, in Sri Lanka and, and other places. It's true in individual self-defense. Um, uh, I uh, insult guy in all kinds of ways. I say, your mother wears army boots and you know, this kind of thing, and really antagonize him. But nothing I've done justifies him in lashing out and trying to hit me with a baseball bat. As soon as he does that, all the rights are on my side and none are on his side, even though I've provoked him in this way, even though I'm the kind of initial wrongdoer. If he's the one who's initiated the violence, that has a major effect on what, the, uh, what, what our rights and permissions are in the conflict. Point of clarification, I'm sorry, I'm taking up far more than my share of the time. Point of clarification, the, the term unjust civilians, I do use that term. All I mean by that is civilians in the country that is fighting unjustly or without a just cause does not mean that they have any liabilities or any kind of moral status whatsoever. It just means that's how I want to, it's just a, it's just a convenient locution for referring to civilians on the side that's fighting unjustly. That's all it means. I should specify that. So I, I think there are no, un, I, I, might use the, I, I might use the phrase unjust humanitarian workers, to the people who are bringing food supplies to, and medical supplies to the civilians on, on the side that's unjust probably be an inadvisable thing to do. Maybe I should figure out a better phrase here. But um, the, the term itself has no, no moral implications whatsoever. It's not, not supposed to. It's just to be a, a term for, for identification or reference without having to use the cumbersome locution, civilians who live in the country, or who are citizens of the country fighting an unjust war. You just you need a shorter phrase. One final thing. Okay. I, just, I, I think this notion of wars of choice and existential wars, I, I, I just don't accept that, that that's any kind of valid distinction at all. I mean, I'm not sure I even know what a war of choice is. Um, I, I guess what I would say, a war of choice would be a war that is actually a just war, but that would be sufficiently costly to the agents who have to wage it that it might be permissible for them not to wage it. In other words, it's, they would be morally justified if they did, 
might be a, a case of humanitarian intervention that's going to be very costly to the intervener, noble and uh, super erogatory for the uh, intervener to do it. That would be the only instance I think of where we'd have something like a notion of a war of choice. Um, wars are either justified or unjustified. Just, well, they're either just justified or unjustified. Um, optional, non-optional. That's another problem. Existential, I don't, I'm not sure if I know what that means. Um, people apply that label to wars. When, um, the, the war by the Carthaginians against the, in the Third Punic War, that was an existential war for the Carthaginians, and they lost it. But what wars nowadays are really existential? I don't know. Nuclear war might be. Sorry, I'll shut up. Thank you, Jeff. Why um, don't we open up for discussion?